this week on the Back Table Podcast. Well, a child who's, say, 12 months old, who's been deaf since birth, who's never heard any sound input whatsoever, the moment you give them sound, that can be a very, very interesting moment for a child. And I think it's very important for families to know that it can look just like YouTube, where they turn it on and the baby lights up like a Christmas tree and everybody cries and laughs and claps and it's great. It can also look, the baby can be absolutely petrified and break down or just get really quiet and scared. Those are all typical responses. They are all expected. That first time that a baby hears sound, we don't know what they're going to do. And so if parents don't know that and they have watched all the the pretty YouTube, because the baby's crying when the cochlear implant is turned on, those don't make it to YouTube. You are not going to find those. So, but they're but they're very important. That's a very normal, uh, expected response for a child who's experiencing something completely new for the first time. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Uh, this is the Backtable ENT podcast. Here, we bring you conversations with the best and brightest minds in our field with the hope that you can take this information and apply it to your own practice. I'm Ashley Agan, and I'm a general otolaryngologist practicing in an academic setting here in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist practicing at Children's Medical Center in Dallas. We're your hosts, and we are glad you stopped by to check out our podcast today. I'm so excited for the podcast on congenital hearing loss. With us, we have two returning guests, Dr. Rachel St. John and Dr. Walter Coots. Dr. Rachel St. John was on Backtable ENT, Episode 10, Comprehensive Care for Deaf and Hard of Hearing Children. She is an Associate Professor of Otolaryngology at UT Southwestern and the Director of our Family Focus Center for Deaf and Hard of Hearing at Children's Health in Dallas. She's a health education consultant at the state and national level. And we have Dr. Walter Coots. He was on Backtable ENT Episode 4, Managing Eustachian Tube Disorders. He's a professor of otolaryngology and neurosurgery at UT Southwestern. He's a fellowship director of the Neurotology Fellowship and an associate program director for our residency program here. Welcome back to the show, y'all. It's great to be back. Thank you so much. Thank you. How's everybody feeling today? Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> for, for so many reasons. <laughs> All right. We are super excited. Just to kind of start from, you know, basics. When do infants with congenital hearing loss present to you guys in your clinic? And what do you look for? What's in the history? At what point do they come and see you? Yeah, I'll go first. For me, it's a little predetermined because in order to get into my clinic, you have to have some diagnostic measure of being deaf or hard of hearing, either a behavioral audiogram or an ABR. And so, you know, I when by the time I see children, they've kind of gone through the audiology process. The parents have at least gotten that initial information that their child is deaf or hard of hearing. So if they come to me as infants, it's probably going to be, I'll usually see them around a month three or four after they've kind of been through all the diagnostic process and arrive in my clinic. But then, you know, because late onset hearing changes are so much more prevalent than congenital, we get lots and lots of older children, toddlers, school-age teenagers who present in our clinic as well. Before we move on, I just wanted to touch on, you know, the screening that leads them to get get that hearing loss detected. And so I know, Dr. St. John, I remember you 
talking about this when I was a resident and just the importance of, you know, making sure we're catching kids at a certain timeline. Can you remind me about what that timeline is? I know, you know, there's the newborn hearing screen that happens in the hospital. What happens after that? And can you have kids who pass that who ultimately actually do, you know, end up seeing you for hearing loss? And if you fail that, then what happens? Absolutely. I'm going to that it's a that's a lot. So I'm going to it. Yeah, but I'm maybe try to do it very succinctly, and then maybe Walt can <laughs> chime in with this too. Very briefly, there's two different kinds of newborn hearing screening that we use: OAE, which are otoacoustic emissions, and automated ABR. So that's an automated acoustic brainstem response. And the real quick and dirty on the two of them is that they both. They're, the thing to remember is they're both screens. They're not diagnostic. So. When you do an OAE, which is used fairly widely in the, the newborn nursery, the well baby nursery, you're basically putting a probe in the ear and emitting a sound and looking for the cochlea to actually make its own microphonic response. So a cochlea that is processing sound makes its own sound. And that gets picked up by the transducer. And so the machine, there's no interpretation. The machine either picks that up or doesn't, and it spits out pass or refer for more testing. For kids who have been in the NICU, they are more likely to have something called auditory neuropathy, which I am sure you're going to ask us about later in this podcast. And those kids can actually get through an OAE. They can actually have a, a typical looking OAE and, and not be hearing typically. And so for those kids, it's much more common to use an automated ABR. So that's actually checking the entire hearing pathway from an external ear through the middle ear, inner ear, cochlear nerve, all the way to the brainstem. So it's looking for brainstem response in response to a sound. And so that will, if you have auditory neuropathy, that will get picked up and that will come out as a fail or not passed. So in terms of timeline, the standard timeline for kids just born, you know, without other complication, it's the American Academy of Pediatrics refers to it as the 136 model. So it's screening by one month of age. And then for infants who don't pass that screening, you want a diagnostic with a pediatric audiologist by three months of age. And then for those children who are identified as deaf or hard of hearing, you want to make sure that services are implemented by six months of age. So that's kind of the timeline for screening. And there's a lot of kids, a lot, who do pass that newborn hearing screening and then have hearing loss late onset. And so the place that those kids ideally are supposed to be identified is in the medical home with those pediatric visits. And really, it's just about, you know, it's very insidious. If it happens during the toddler years, you know, you're basically looking for language development and, and kids and, and parental concern that kids are not responding the way that you would expect them. Those would be things that would prompt you to, to do another hearing evaluation. So in terms of the newborn hearing screen, is it true that in the state of Texas, if you're born in a hospital, you should have had a newborn hearing screen prior to leaving, whether it's a healthy baby nursery or the neonatal ICU? It's actually true in most states. The vast majority of states have legislation for newborn hearing screening. And that's either legal mandate through law or that's policy. There's very few states at this point. And I would have to go to the EDI, the, the CDC Early Hearing Detection and Intervention website has all that data in terms of who's got current legislation in place. But it, it's most of the, the 50 states that do. So I always ask, and I'm sure everybody does as part of my birth history, because 
you know, we do have a small percentage or group of babies that are either born at a birthing center or home where the hearing screen is not done. And maybe you're seeing them for us, we'll see them for Lingo Malaysia at two months. And yet here we are without a history of a hearing screen. So just things to kind of keep in mind. Well, and interestingly, Texas a couple of years ago passed legislation that now requires both children's hospitals and birthing centers to at least refer those children to a screening site. So it used to be those babies that were born at those sites were kind of exempt, for lack of a better word, and they could easily fall through the cracks. But at least in the state of Texas, we have legislation in place now that with midwives as well, if you aren't doing the screening, you can't just say, well, I don't screen. You actually have to make a referral to a place that will. So it sounds like these babies will present as early as between three to six months to you to as late as, when you say late onset, are you talking like uh, six months, 18 months, three-year-old, 10-year-old? Yes. <laughs> all of the above. All, all of the above. It can, I mean, it can happen for so many. Re- and I'm sure Walter has seen quite a few patients, you know, presenting who have, you know, they'll have like a late onset acoustic neuroma. And so they can, I mean... That could happen anytime. That could happen in adulthood. That could happen in late, your late teens. So yeah, the, the timeline is, it's life, basically. Yeah. Dr. Coots, how do you, how do these patients present to your clinic? Right, is it similar or is it different? Yeah, I think, you know, being a tertiary, well, I'm sorry, I guess being a subspecialist in a tertiary hospital, you, generally speaking, they're going to be referred in by another otolaryngologist, sometimes audiologist, and, you know, typically the pediatricians sending one of the patients to our practice, they'll, they'll see one of our pediatric otolaryngologists first. So oftentimes I'll see the patients, once it's been determined, they need something like a cochlear implant or, or maybe they have atresia and they're considering an atresia plasty or bone or hearing aid. That's typically what I would see patients with hearing loss. And in terms of birth history, prenatal history, you know, I kind of go through what were, you know, any, how many weeks was the baby born at, ICU stay, any perinatal infections. What other questions in history do you feel like, hey, this is important, but maybe something that we don't always think about that you always kind of make sure you ask every time? That's a that's a good question. I think you covered a lot of them, you know, prematurity and all of the things that go along with prematurity. There, there's a ton of risk factors there for hearing changes. You know, I certainly I think prenatal care is a really big one, too, because those moms are going to get testing for torch infections and, you know, potentially CMV. Um, syphilis, those kinds of things. I think one of the things that I have, I think it's just through practice and I've seen enough of these kids. It's not super common, but it happens enough that I've changed my practice is with kids who have later onset hearing changes. I'm starting to ask much more routinely about noise exposure, both from, because, you know, we're, we're sort of in ear pod generation with these kids. They, they are spending a lot of the day with headphones or ear buds in and are not always mindful of volume. But also, you know, in this, in here, we're here in Texas, I have a fair number of families and one of the sort of cultural activities that they participate in very regularly is hunting. And I have several kids in my practice who have had acoustic trauma and that sort of classic 2000 hertz drop because it's just not been the culture of the family to wear ear protection. The kid I saw most recently, he was really upset. He thought he had done something wrong and he started crying and he said, but, but Papa doesn't wear it either. It's the, we have headphones, but they're always in the truck. 
And so, you know, we obviously had to convince him that, no, he, he was fine. <laughs> it's not, you know, everybody has to wear them, not just him. He's not in trouble. But I am much more aggressive about, about screening for that when I meet talking with families. Yeah, it's definitely important. So when we've, you know, have these these newborns who are coming in and diagnosed with some congenital hearing loss, what what happens next? So what's the next step of the workup? Do they need a, a sedated ABR or a natural sleeping ABR to really confirm? Like, do you have a preference for that? Yeah, I, I you know, I think in terms of, so the ABR, basically a Good quality ABR requires a still person. So we can actually do napping ABRs in older people, too, if they're cooperative. So I think in terms of preference between napping and sedated, I mean, my, you know, I think Dr. Coots will speak to this as well. But my preference for the child is always if we can get it napping, great. But for infants who are poor nappers, even if they do sleep, sometimes the quality of the sleep is fairly light and then you don't get a great ABR. So I think it's it's kind of whatever gets you the best information. If we have a kid that you sleep deprived and you give them a bottle and they just conk out and they're a great sleeper, you're probably going to get a good quality ABR. But then there's some kids who just fight that eternally and and you, you might end up needing a sedated ABR to get a, a decent evaluation on them. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, and, and I also really listen to the audiologist. You know, I think they're, especially for ABR, and oftentimes when I'm seeing the the child, we're talking about a cochlear implant, and it's very important to establish hearing. You know, oftentimes these kids will have otitis media, so they, they may need tubes anyway to get a really accurate ABR. So we may be taking the operating room, place tubes, and then, and then obtain an ABR. The thing is, an, an ABR takes, you know, 30, 45 minutes in the operating room. So you know, there's some concerns with children being under anesthesia for long lengths of time. So, you know, I do agree with Dr. St. John, trying to get a napping ABR is definitely preferable. But once, you know, I think we definitely want to have good information if we're going to progress to a cochlear implant. And speaking to that, do you feel like the degree of hearing loss changes your workup of your routine workup ever? That's that's like, re- that's a are great you question. less aggressive and, you know, mild bilateral or mild unilateral than you would be in you know, moderate or profound bilateral. This is interesting. I'm going to be interested to see what what Walter says, because I, I don't, I feel like some of this is based on the patient population you see. So for me, in general, I do the same thing, same kind of algorithm for unilateral and bilateral. But I think in terms of being aggressive, the timeline might change. So, for example, if we have somebody who gets an ABR and there's no response and they're a cochlear implant candidate, we're going to really make sure that imaging is part of that, you know, because we're, we're, we've got anywhere from six months to 12 months until time of implant. Imaging is going to be a really important part of that. Whereas if I have a baby who is mild to moderate, I am, imaging is probably going to be part of that process, but I, I'm not necessarily going to feel the need to get a sedated uh, MRI of the internal auditory canals right away unless it's going to change management because I tend to default to genetic testing first in kids who have bilateral sensory neural. The latest data from CDC shows that that's 50 to 60 percent of babies who are born deaf or hard of hearing. Um, It's going to be genetic because it's often non-syndromic and autosomal recessive. And so you might not see any family history, even though it's part of the thing that we ask about. So I'm going to go to to comprehensive genetic testing first because that might obviate the need for anything else. If I find out it's Connexin 26, 
and we're going to that kid's going to do very well with bilateral hearing aids. I'm not going to image them because that's that's a gap junction issue. That's a histopathology issue. That's not structural. I would fully expect to see a typical MRI. And so I think the the order in which you do them and the timeline in which you do them changes for me depending on the degree. Ultimately, I'm going to address the same things. But, you know, I, I, I'm interested to hear what Walt says because I, you know, I see patients on a little bit different timeline and in a little different span than he does. So that might, that might change depending on who you're working with. I, I, I follow a pretty similar decision-making and, you know, every patient is different, right? Some may be premature. They may have family history. I do agree if, you know, if they have an abnormal connection test, they're unlikely going to have an abnormal MRI. Of course, if you're going to, if they have severe or profound hearing loss, you're going to do a cochlear implant. Right. And you're going to want to do some imaging for, for preoperative planning. And, you know, if, if a child has sy- symmetric, mild to moderate sensory hearing loss, I don't think they necessarily need imaging. I think if there's asymmetric hearing loss that's significant. That's when I would definitely lean towards imaging. But I do agree, you know, if, if in, in most cases, they have abnormality, it's going to be something like it's, it's, you're not going to see anything on imaging or they may have an absent cochlear nerve on one side. I do recall a recent case of, of I think, a 12-year-old or 13-year-old that uh, had some asymmetric hearing, obtained an MRI and actually had a glioblastoma along the auditory pathway, which is very, very rare. And, you know, you don't want to base all your decisions off of one case, but, you know, we did order the MRI because of the asymmetry of the hearing loss. And that's, yeah, so I think, you know, mild to moderate symmetric, child's doing okay with hearing aids. I probably wouldn't image them, but carefully follow their hearing. Yeah, I think the asymmetry piece is really big. And that's something that I always talk about with residents when I'm teaching is especially if it's late onset. But, you know, regardless, it's like if you've got an asymmetric presentation, you do think more structural or new and you want to rule out the bad stuff. And and especially and I think this is something you guys are going to get to. But if you have a mixed presentation, you know, one of the things that always starts percolating in my mind is enlarged vestibular aqueduct because we see a fair amount of it. So, yeah, I think the point about asymmetry is is pretty critical to keep in mind. Speaking of uh, mixed, and I feel like I ask you this, Rachel, all the time in clinic when I have like a mixed uh, result. Do you like MRI? Do you like CT? How do you decide which uh, scan to get? To me, you know, my rule of thumb kind of is since neural, I tend to get MRI just because you see the nerve better, asymmetry. I like MRI because of sensory neural. I think of, you know, make sure there's no tumor, conductive, temporal bone, better bony anatomy and a CT. But for mixed, I'm never quite sure which one to get. I call Dr. Coots and I'm like, what would you do? <laughs> this is where I would really punt to the otologists. Although I think I, I've read a lot of different things in the literature. I've read that CT is adequate for evaluating EVAS. And then MRI is superior for evaluating EVAS. And then I've talked to people who said, I prefer CT or I prefer MRI. And, you know, I feel like it's shown up on both studies. So I would love, I'd love to hear sort of the otology take on that. Yeah, I think the um, probably the way you know, typically mixed loss. I think I'd lean towards a CT temporal bone. You're going to most likely see EVA. You can measure the aqueduct pretty easily and see the posterior canal. There's different ways of determining if it's truly in a large visitor aqueduct. And then you know, if you are going to look at a sacral abnormalities, you can see the shape of the cochlea. You know, you're you're not getting MRI. You know, MRI is beneficial if you look at the cochlear nerve status. You know, is it you know hypoplastic or or absent. You, you're looking at inner abnormalities, but you can see that on CT scan. And the disadvantage of a CT scan, of course, is it's, there's going to be some radiation involved, and it's not negligible with a CT temporal bone. There's, you know, 
a, a fair amount of radiation. And again, you know, if it's asymmetric or uh, single-sided mixed hearing loss, the kid's doing okay, you can do that CT scan. We don't have to sedate them or, you know, when they're older, you know, to get them out of that young age or where the CT scan and the radiation may be more, have more problems in the future. So I think I would lean toward a CT scan for mixed hearing loss in most cases. That's great for me to hear. <laughs> so if you're going to, if you're going to wait, like, let's say you have like a two-year-old or three-year-old and you're like, we'll, we'll wait to do a CT scan and we'll wait until they're a little older to where they don't need sedation. How, like, how long would you wait and how would you follow them while you're waiting on that? You mean for mixed hearing loss? Or for, mm -hmm. I mean, if it's, if it's unilateral, I'm not really worried about anything that's going to harm them. You know, I'm not worried about a tumor or anything of that sort. So I think you could wait as long as you, you know, until you don't have to have sedation. You know, a CT scan takes, what, a minute or two. It's pretty quick. And unlike an MRI where it's 30 minutes plus, and then, you know, they got to probably be under anesthesia up till maybe, you know, you know, three, four, five years of age, kind of depending on the child, maybe an older. So I think, you know, and you could also get atresia, same sort of thing, you know. I think atresia needs, um, is going to cause hearing loss. You're going to present with hearing loss. They need imaging, but I wouldn't image them necessarily when they're very young. I'd wait till they're probably three or four years of age. They get a CT scan. You know, no, I don't think you need any sedation so fast for most kids. And you're just rolling out a cholesteatoma at that point anyway. So, yeah, I, that's kind of the, my thought. It, 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 if I'm worried about something, if they're more, if they have surgery for a cochlear implant, or if I'm worried about something that's going to harm them, then I think you need to push the imaging up. Otherwise, I think you can wait and just kind of check that box at some point and make sure you have a diagnosis. Yeah. I, I always tend to go with things that are going to change my management. And I, I talk about that with families too, so that they know what to expect. Because, you know, sometimes we have families who just want to know. And then when we talk about the fact that we're not necessarily going to do anything with that information, they actually feel a little differently about waiting a little bit until that child is older and either can handle sedation better or potentially not need it. But, you know, I always let them know that should something change, that's something that, you know, if I have a, a child who has had, he was born unilateral and then the other ear becomes involved, I'm probably going to want to image that child. So, or if they have really significant progressive, you know, is there, because EVAS doesn't have to present as a mixed. I've seen it present as predominantly sensory neural. And so, you know, if there is something there that we might do something differently about, I will always push imaging. But I, I think it's important to look at that. And, and say, am I getting this because I want to feel better having gotten it or the family does? Or am I actually going to do something with that information? Great and point. for your follow-up, are you doing, you know, every few months, every six months? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it depends on the family. I mean, I, I tend to follow patients annually minimum. And then yeah. if things are shifting or if we end up with some transitional challenge, you know, like we're, we're changing, we're, we're entering public school or we're shifting from elementary to junior high and the format for learning changes dramatically. Or if parents are really anxious, sometimes I'll do something sooner. It really, I just kind of base it on what the family needs. Yeah. Yeah. I always worry about, about people and patients falling through the cracks, you know, like, so if the plan is, okay, we're going to wait a few years to get the imaging, you know, because it's not going to change anything right now. I just worry that, you know, life happens and then, you know, a few years will pass and then it will just kind of have been, it, it dropped or, or whatnot. So I, I probably have patients follow up too much. <laughs> I, I feel like I would rather them follow up too much yeah. than not enough. <laughs> Sometimes there's some social visits in there just to check in. <laughs> those, those can be very valuable. 
Well, yeah, you know, now even with uh, telehealth, I haven't done that as much in the, my pediatric practice, but you know, that's helpful just to touch base. It's uh, convenient. You know, you, at this point, I don't know if the online audiograms are all that great for, especially for kids, but I mean, the easy way just to touch base, Hey, is school going okay? Any problems with, you know, speech and language? And then, you know, that'd be an easy way of doing that more frequently. Cause I think it's a good point. We do lose patients, you know, to follow up and then you kind of worry what happened. I find that I was just going to say, I, I find that with virtual school that has started in the last year, these kids that have had, you know, uh, baseline hearing loss or newly identified because of the virtual and the ability to control the volume on the computer or the iPad, these kids are actually doing well. And I actually recently had a new identified moderate sensory or hearing loss in a 13-year-old girl. Her hearing started to change. She knew, noticed it changed a year ago, didn't really say anything. School, she's been an A student in the past 12 months because she's been virtual learning. They're, the classroom hasn't affected it. And she kind of skated by until she failed a hearing screen at her pediatrician's office. So it's it's interesting how some of this, you know, the changes have also maybe have actually been, I think, beneficial to some of these kids. That's that's a very interesting point because, you know, our counseling has changed dramatically with online learning. I mean, there's all sorts of accommodations that you can talk about for captioning, for streaming Bluetooth through your amplification. I mean, there's all sorts of things we can do at home. But it's been interesting because there's been two very distinct camps of these kids. There's a, a, I would argue it's a smaller group of kids who have done better, but it's for the reasons that exactly that you said, Gopi, you've modified and almost eliminated competing background noise. So there's nobody whispering next to you in class. There's nothing going on. Like you can really contain the sound and you can control the volume and there, you know, some of these kids do much better. And then there's a lot of these kids, the lack of structure that they had with in-person learning, it's, it's really rough. It's been really, really tough for these kids. And so they've had wildly different experiences. And I think it just always goes back to the fact that it really depends on the kid that you're talking to. Absolutely. We've uh, just personally having younger kids, first grade and third grade, the when it's virtual at home, it's that lack of structure is it's difficult. <laughs> and, you know, my kids are fortunately hearing, you know, they they don't have any hearing concerns, but. Maybe. No, it's been, it's been, I think, fairly brutal across the board with that, that lack of, you can't replicate that at home. It's just yeah. hearing is just one more level that right. you're, you're working with. All right. Tell us, can we talk a little bit about the auditory neuropathy kids? I would love to kind of, you know, if you could just explain that to us. And then how are these, are these kids different in your mind? I just, I'm sort of, we're like kind of looking at each other, like who wants to take this first? <laughs> it's, it's a, it's, it's the Pandora's box for sure. I think it's a great thing to talk about. Walter, do you want to start with that one? Yeah, I mean, I can, yeah, you know, oftentimes these kids will come over because they're potentially a cochlear implant candidate. You know, like Dr. St. John said, they're, they're going to have oftentimes intact acoustic reflexes. They're going to have abnormal ABR. Oftentimes the ABR will show a mirroring when you when you when you change the um, the rarefaction of condensation, they'll they'll mirror each other. So there's kind of this distinct pattern, you know, for classic auditory neuropathy that's seen. I think an important thing to remember is that sometimes kids can be born with auditory neuropathy, and then it'll actually improve. And so these kids, we definitely go a little bit slower on if we're going to consider cochlear implants, and they're they're very carefully followed by audiology. You know, and frankly, the I mean, the audiologists are experts at this, and I really you know listen to their what, what, you know, their interpretation of how the child's doing and, and, you know, as a team, and we'll talk about this later, we get together and, you know, decide, you know, is a cochlear implant in the best interest of this child. So I think auditory neuropathy definitely throws 
uh, it makes it more interesting and challenging, you know, for, for those kids, especially. Yeah, I, I agree. I think from a, a parent expectation point of view, this is probably one of the most challenging things that comes through my clinic because I, I by nature, AN is very idiosyncratic. So every, not just, you know, every child looks a little different in terms of how they're, it's cortical level hearing processing. So the sound gets to the brain, but then there's, it's not always processed the way that we would expect. And so not only do these kids look different from each other, so you might have one kid who doesn't benefit from hearing aids and one that really does, and their their behavioral thresholds look fairly similar. But these kids can actually look different from day to day. I mean, parents will classically describe having good hearing days and bad hearing days. And that is the absolute nature of AN. It's its own, it's its own thing. And so I think in terms of parent, you know, counseling parents of what to expect, that's much more difficult because we don't always know what to expect. We don't know if the character of that's going to change. As Dr. Coots mentioned, you know, if you have AN and you get cortical maturation, you, you may see that waveform change around 15 or 18 months of age. Whereas children who have like a really significant brain insult, like our kids with really severe hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, you know, that's, that's sound processing at a cortical level that's not happening. And that's not going to improve because the brain, the insult is what it is. And then it's, you know, for, for lack of a better word, fairly static after that. So, you know, what parents expect is tough. And then I think what happens is parents sometimes get very mixed messages from different providers. And that has been one of the bigger challenges for me in working with these families. So I had a family, there was an audiologist, it was, it was an outside audiologist who said, oh, well, your kid needs a cochlear implant because those kids always do better with a cochlear implant. And while we know that sometimes the quality of the input with a cochlear implant is might be better than what they get through hearing aids, this is a kid whose behavioral thresholds were testing in the mild to typical range. We just knew that the the message wasn't this, the standard message, they still had that AN waveform. So that's not somebody who would even qualify for a cochlear implant. And, and so it, it's some of those blanket statements. It's like, oh, if you have AN, then you do this. I think this is the, the absolute poster child for making sure that you are looking at that individual child and that individual family, because the, the medical advice changes for sure. So do you, you refer these kids for hearing aid evaluation? What are their resources or options? How do you, what kind of counseling do you, or resources can you provide these patients? It, absolutely. I mean, those, these kids often will benefit from hearing aids. It's just a question of, of, is the quality helpful for them? And some of these kids it is, and some of them they're not. So, you know, when, in talking with our audiologists, the, the goal is always to, we, for anybody who's even considering a cochlear implant, we always see benefit to hearing aids first. That's kind of part of the picture. But for these kids in particular, um, it's really important to see how they do with hearing aids. And one of the things that that the audiologists and I have talked about a lot is that if they're going to program, they really need behavioral thresholds. You can't, you can't really get good threshold information off an ABR when you have auditory neuropathy. You can't state for sure this is this is the level of hearing that I'm testing today. That really has to come from a behavioral evaluation. So those kids necessarily have to be a little bit older and they have to be able to get some behavioral information and then program based on response. And so it, I think that our pediatric audiologists are our absolute best allies in this because they are really trained to get some really subtle information from kids about what they're doing with that acoustic information. So I lean on them very heavily in, in, in collaborating with them, w with these patients in particular. 
And the the diagnosis of auditory neuropathy is made based on the pattern seen on the ABR. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Okay. And so you you could have a patient that has a pretty good or or mo- you know mild moderate looking behavioral audiogram but they have auditory neuropathy and maybe it has or has not been diagnosed if they haven't had that ABR that shows that pattern. Is that? Yeah, as far as I am aware, you're not going to be, I mean, I would, I would punt to audiology on this one unless Dr. Coots has some other input, but you're not like kids who are getting behavioral testing. There's no, there's no mechanism for testing for auditory neuropathy. So that is, is based, that's my understanding. It's based on the ABR pattern. So see. you have to have that suspicion to test for it, to, to get the ABR. You know what I'm saying? So like if you have a kid that's got, you know, their behavioral testing looks pretty good, but yet there's report of problems or hearing loss there, you have there, someone has to be like, oh, maybe this is auditory neuropathy and we should get an ABR or no, am I thinking of this wrong? I, I think the way it bears out practically, it's the opposite, which is you have kids who, based on either the fact that they're a baby and they can't behaviorally test, or they have something that some condition, HIE, seizure disorder, microcephaly, you know, something that's going to potentially cause an AN situation, cernicterous. And so those kids also often can't condition if they're older to behavioral testing. So by default, you end up with an ABR to get accurate information. And so I, at least, I, I don't know, Walter, if you've had a different experience with this, but most of the time, the ABR information, it comes necessarily with these kids because it's really the only mechanism that we've had to get a a full evaluation on them. That makes sense. Yeah, and I I agree with that. Usually they've they've undergone ABR for, there's always a suspicion or they can't do behavioral testing. And that's where you see the arteropathy. You know, the adult side, you may see it's not, I don't see that commonly on the adult side or the or older children, but it can happen, you know, delayed Charcot-Marie-Tooth or some other conditions that can cause auditory neuropathy. And these patients will come in and, and their pure tone testing is pretty good, but their speech discrimination scores does not correspond at all. And then we'd send them for an ABR. We may detect auditory neuropathy in the, in the older patient population, but it's just not that common. So I do think they typically come in with the ABR for other reasons. That makes sense. And then just kind of switching to some of the other groups of kids that we might see. CMV comes to mind, EVA comes to mind, history of meningitis comes to mind. How do those different groups or I think of it, I always put them in little buckets. How do how does your thought process work up management for, for like we can start with CMV change or how is it different, you know, versus, you know, the meningitis patient who has had meningitis at four months of age? Walter, I'll take CMV if you want to take meningitis. You want to, you want to divvy it up? We can tag team. That's a fair deal. I'll take that. Walter's like sold. Also, I think Dr. Cuse is probably a really good person to speak on the meningitis because the, the timeline for intervention looks, it's pretty unique for that. So, so he's, he's the guy, but CMV, CMV is tough for a number of reasons. So congenital cytomegalovirus, it's every place in the United States right now, in all of our 50 states, because we handle things at the state level, it's all being handled differently. And a lot of it depends on, you know, what's been put in front of legislature based on what's been happening. So the the thing about CMV that's so tough. So if it's the, the neurologic presentation for CMV all depends on when the mother contracted CMV during her pregnancy. So if it's an early, like first trimester, infection and she did not have 
native antibodies, if she it's the first time she's seen CMV, that baby will usually come out. People will mostly know that that baby likely has CMV. You know, they're small. They have terrible, they have problems with clotting. They have terrible problems with jaundice. They often have vision, hearing. There's a whole host of, of symptoms that go along with that. The tricky part is the later, the closer to the third trimester infection, because while those babies sometimes are born deaf or hard of hearing, it is much more common for that to be a delayed onset phenomenon. And that's where screening gets tricky. UT Southwestern, very fortunately, was part of this study back in 2007 called the CHIME study. And so there were, I think there were, these are five or seven centers, but we were one of them, where basically uh, from 2007 to 2012, so it was a five-year period, every child that did not pass a newborn hearing screening in our hospital system, and that included Parkland, got a PCR test for CMV at birth. And so that was almost 100,000 kids by the end of the study. It was 999 something. And so they looked at all those kids who didn't pass their newborn hearing screening and saw how many of them had congenital CMV. And it was an extremely low number. It was 0.4%. So it's translated to like 400 some kids out of 400 kids out of 100,000. And the problem with that is those you first of all, you only catch the kids who are presenting as deaf or hard of hearing. And about, it caught about, it was close to 60% of them, but the other 40% are kids who they had CMV and they were delayed onset. So, so the newborn hearing screening wasn't your pathway to, to figuring out who those kids are. The much bigger problem is CMV is ubiquitous in the community. And so if, if you look at Karen Fowler's data, so she's an ID professor at University of Alabama, and she has done a ton of publication on congenital CMV. Um, and if you look at her data and you look at the CDC data, it's around 8 to 12%. So if you split the difference, 10% of kids who are completely asymptomatic, asymptomatic who have CMV go on to develop delayed onset hearing loss. If you look at the number of those kids, if you look at the incidence of CMV in the general community, it's one in 200. It's really high. And so, you know, in the state of Texas, we're talking about roughly 400 kids a year that would be born who pass their newborn hearing screening and will go on to develop late onset hearing loss. And so anything we do in the newborn period to, to try to identify that with newborn hearing screening, we're not going to catch it. So it's a late onset phenomenon for these kids who are born and don't have other symptomatology of CMV. So it all rests on suspicion and following in, in the medical home. If you know these kids are CMV positive at birth, you're going to look at them a little more closely. But it's really hard. It's, you know, it's the delayed onset stuff is really tough, especially in the sort of toddler pre-K group, because really you're looking for concern about responsiveness and lack of expressive language delay. And that can be not picked up. That can be really tricky. It can be minimized. It can be overlooked. It can be denied. So CMV is challenging, but, you know, if we know about it in the newborn period and they're symptomatic, that can change our management. Some of those kids are will qualify for Gans-Cyclovir treatment, which has, and I'm not, I'm not a super guru with the Gans-Cyclovir studies, but there's been enough data to show that that can ameliorate some of the progression with the hearing. And so we've definitely had patients who have been identified early and have gotten Gans-Cyclovir therapy and have gone on with kind of frequent testing to see how that has affected their hearing. It's very, it's that, very tricky. 
does that identification happen because they they fail their newborn hearing screen and so then they get the the blood test or it only happened in the concept context of the chimes program universal cmv screening is almost nowhere because that's huge it's a huge undertaking in terms of money and then linking that to newborn hearing screening targeted testing which is what the chimes program did you know i think philosophically we love it but when you look at the data it caught 0.4 percent of kids who didn't pass their newborn hearing screening that's that's not winning over people who are planning budgets. That's not something that's making people run to to fund newborn hearing screening protocols and testing for CMV in those in those patient populations. So the American Academy of Pediatrics just last month established a CMV committee that I have joined because for just this reason, it is it is really tricky. It's tough to get funding, but we know what the longitudinal implications are. And so we're all very passionate about it. It's just figuring out realistically how to make that happen in a kind of coordinated way. It's it's very challenging. So is the hearing screen for this progressive onset, you know, has Pat, baby passed this newborn hearing screen, but there was CMV in the history. Are you getting behavioral audios, ABRs? Is this something they can just do in the pediatrician's office? Do they need a pediatric audiologist? How, how I guess, what's the timeline and how, how often and how are we checking their hearing to test for progressive hearing loss? So I believe the way we handled it through the CHIMES program is that those children were followed up with audiology every three to six months to see what, in, at least in those first three years of development. And I, I think it was a combination of both screening and testing just to get as much data. So like if a kid had an atypical screen and they were too young for behavioral testing, that would buy them an ABR. But if they were old enough to behavioral test, they would try to get as much data there. But they were followed very closely by audiology for several years. I think the average age of hearing loss in this patient population for kids who have delayed onset is between two and two and a half years old. And so, you know, that's a that's a tough time. Also, you know, language-wise, like what's going on there? I mean, the kids are frustrated because they don't have enough language if they're hearing. And there's so much development that's happening. So they were followed very closely for several years as part of that study. I mean, certainly if we have kids and we know that they had congenital CMV, we I tend to make sure those kids are plugged in with audiology pretty frequently. And if you look at the, the like if they go to audiology and they'll always write their recommendations, it's always like come back within, you know, three months, six months. It's, it's never, oh, we'll see you next year because that often is a moving target. In terms of screening, are we talking about like behavioral like behavioral sound field OAEs and temps or hey I can't get behavioral sound field because I can't get the baby to condition at 10 months I have normal temps and OAEs that's sufficient or are we talking now hey we might need an ABR and it, this might need to be under anesthesia because the baby doesn't nap anymore like what what's the minimum amount of screening do you feel for the CMV babies is adequate? Yeah, that's that's tough. I mean, I think that part of it is you have to look at your individual kid. So if you've got a kid who has signs of developmental delay, I'm not going to be messing around with acoustic reflexes. I'm going to want full ear-specific data on that child because that's going to affect, are we using hearing aids? What kind of education plan? What kind of ECI support? Like you want to know, you know, for kids who are asymptomatic, we happen to know that they have congenital CMV and they have 
typical OAEs, like they're, they're seeing them and they're doing screening and that kid is developing normal language that would probably be a little less likely to push into a sedated ABR just to know what was happening. But again, for those kids that are, you know, for in my clinic, it doesn't matter if we're talking about CMV or not. If you've got expressive language delay, I need ear specific information. I think, you know, when we've had kids who have had sound field testing for three years and haven't been able to condition and they've got language delay, I'm like, that kid needs an ABR. You need to know, we need to know yeah. what we're working with. We're only getting information on the better hearing ear. We so can't I think a lot of it. Yeah. No, I, it's, it's already been missed. Yeah. Good. Yeah. No, that's super helpful. So Walt, let's talk about the meningitis picture, the the child with meningitis. Tell us sort of, you know, with meningitis, the infection can lead to hearing loss. And so, you know, while they're in the hospital, many times they'll get an audiogram and you might have a child that has moderate to severe bilateral hearing loss. What are the next steps? When do you see these kids? And what is your thought process, you know, in terms of if if we are going to need to think towards a cochlear implant? Yeah. So, yeah, bacterial meningitis can certainly cause severe to profound sensory hearing loss. Viral men meningitis typically does not do this. So it's, you know, going to be bacterial. The kids can be very sick in the hospital. You know, oftentimes you're at the first goal is to make sure the child survives the infection, doesn't have any neurological, you know, complications. And oftentimes these kids are really sick, but, you know, once they're stabilized, we recommend testing, you know, a lot of times that may have to be an ABR because they're not going to be neurologically responsive. And it's really important to identify hearing loss very early because they can develop labyrinthitis ossificans, which is where the, the cochlea can ossify. And this can happen within weeks, very quickly, within a two or three weeks even. And so if we, if we identify a child with bacterial meningitis that is, you know, has severe to profound sensory hearing loss, we'll try to place a cochlear implant as soon as possible, you know, that week or the next week, if we can. You know, the the problem if, you know, if it's delayed and they've had meningitis, and they develop labyrinthitis specificans, placing a cochlear implant can be very difficult. As a matter of fact, you may even have to drill out the cochlea and just kind of lay the electrodes into the, what what's left of the cochlea after doing that. And those results are definitely inferior to what you get by placing a cochlear implant before ossification. So there's definitely a timeline that's critical for patients with bacterial meningitis. Is that common for uh, patients to get labyrinthitis ossificans? Is that happening to most meningitis patients or? No, that's not most patients. You know, that's typically the really sick patients, but even patients that, you know, they're recovering for bacterial meningitis that maybe, you know, didn't, weren't as sick as others, you know, they definitely need testing quickly. They need to be followed at probably regular intervals. I would you know, typically that may be four to every four weeks for the first, for a while, you know, depending, if, like, especially if you use a mild hearing loss or moderate hearing loss after bacterial meningitis, you want to follow those kids very carefully to make sure the hearing loss isn't progressing. But it's, you know, we don't see it all that often. I would say once or twice a year, if even that, we have a child we do a cochlear implant on because of bacterial meningitis. And obviously at Children's Medical Center, there's many kids that have bacterial meningitis. So it's not that common, but it's something we should be aware of. Aware of. Gotcha. I think that that's probably a good good segue into talking about cochlear implants. Um, Dr. Coots, we wanted to kind of get into, you know, what what is the pathway, what does the evaluation look like for, for these patients who are, you know, born with congenital hearing loss and who will ultimately end up getting a cochlear implant? Yeah, I mean, we've set up a really nice multidisciplinary team, which I think is essential, uh, especially for, for children. And you'll, they'll typically come in, they'll fail their newborn hearing screen, or they may come in later because of CMV or some other progressive hearing loss. But mo I, I would say most of our kids come in, you know, they're 
six months of age been identified or even three months of age. And then we typically have two conf- or two meetings. It's a multidisciplinary clinic. Uh, they'll come in, they'll meet the otologist, which would be myself or three other of the otologists in the practice. We always have the patient see Dr. St. John because of her input. And, you know, I think it's a good checks and balances to make sure we've done all the, the testing. We'll, you know, we want to do imaging. We typically would get an MRI. We don't, the only time I get a CT scan is if there's some inner ear, inner ear abnormalities. I'm worried about a, a, an aberrant facial nerve or something of that sort. And then, you know, we'll have to see ophthalmology, do genetic testing. We'll get an EKG and that's going to be our typical workup. And so I think by having seen Dr. St. John in our clinic a couple of times, we make sure to get all that covered. We're also very careful. These kids get back vaccinated. They need to have their Prevnar 13, which is normal. They're normal, part of the normal vaccines until two years of age. But when they're two years of age, they'll get a pneumovax as well, because with a cochlear implant, these kids have a higher risk of meningitis. And actually, Dr. St. John started a program this year, a quality improvement initiative that we're proud to say with her leadership, we, we made sure 100% of kids had their proper vaccination over the past year, which is, it's kind of a big undertaking, right? With, you know, it's easy to miss that, but- Congratulations. That's yeah. huge. Well, you're, you're just, you're being nice because these guys were so tolerant of me just pounding <laughs> them by email every couple of weeks when I was running the data. They were awesome. So that's, it was a, it was a Herculean team effort for sure. That's, that's what it is. It's important. You know, I mean, you just feel terrible if one of your patients got meningitis and were properly vaccinated. So it's a, it's extremely important. And so anyway, so we, we, there's a lot of, a lot that goes into that. And then at the meeting, they're going to, it's going to be an otologist, uh, a cochlear audiologist. We have a psychologist to meet with the family, a social worker. Um, and so th- and the team will generally meet with the patient twice. And so, you know, we, one, we want to make sure the patient's a good cochlear implant candidate. We want to make sure they're going to, I mean, the, the real work of the cochlear implant journey starts after the surgery, right? I mean, that's when, I mean, the kids have got to wear the implant. The parents have to be supportive. A lot of these young kids are just going to want to wear it. And so, you know, that first week or two, the parent has to make sure you know, the, the child's wearing the cochlear implant all the time. And so we want to make sure, you know, they understand, you know, some of those um, issues. There could be behavioral issues. A child could have autism. They may have some other severe neurologic problems, you know, that, that they may not be a great cochlear implant. They're just not going to be able to do anything with that input. So it can be a very complex decision-making. So that's, that's kind of how we do it. It's, you know, two, two clinic visits with our multidisciplinary team, and it seems to work pretty well. What's the average age of implant for most most patients who are? I mean, we try to get them implanted by one years of age if they're Medicaid. If they have private insurance, we'll try to get them even sooner, nine nine to twelve months of age. You know, and that doesn't always happen. Unfortunately, there's some socioeconomic issues that come up. But you know, we do the best we can. The earlier you can implant a child with severe to bilateral, severe to profound bilateral hearing loss, the better they're going to do. And once they get over three years of age, I think their potential for you know, being an excellent cochlear implant user really starts to to decline. So, you know, average age, hope, hopefully we implant it by one year of age. I'm sure it's a little older than that, but that's that's what we shoot for. One thing we've been doing with CI team, which I have found incredibly helpful, and I hope Dr. Coots has as well, is that we do a monthly multidisciplinary team meeting by, well, now by Zoom with COVID, which is, I think, made it a lot easier, honestly, in terms of scheduling. But that's where we actually look at cases that are particularly more complicated, whether it's ethical, psychosocial, medical, all of the above. You know, we've had, you know, like a case of a child who had unilateral sensory neural hearing loss. So she actually had access to language, but she was deaf in one ear and mom was really, really looking for a cochlear implant and sort of 
helping her understand that that wasn't going to change that child's access to language because she had the one ear that heard typically that wasn't necessarily going to change the child's trajectory. Having a multidisciplinary meeting where we kind of all reviewed the case and reviewed what had been done and reviewed, you know, kind of what mom had been coming to the team with was really, really helpful or families that have been declined elsewhere and are seeking a second opinion. Like that's, I think, I found that to be incredibly valuable, both in helping families with appropriate expectations. And then also, you know, sometimes we will talk about things and, go and say, OK, what what's what is do we have a policy when we have a particular situation like this? Well, how do we tend to handle it? What's what's the, what's our database to norm? And sometimes it's it's easy and sometimes it's stuff we haven't seen before. And it's it's a first time. So I've, I thought, think that's been a really, really helpful part of the CI multidisciplinary process. Yeah, that's amazing. As, as as from the patient side of it, I think I would I would be, you know, very excited to know that so many people are thinking about my case and, you know, trying to help make the best decision. I think that's awesome. Rachel, when you're for your part of it, you know, I assume when they're seeing you during that first year before before they're implanted or before the, the decision has been made that that's a good recommendation. What kinds of things are happening when they see you? And is there a role for, you know, other, any other types of hearing aid or, you know, what, what hearing anything? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's happening in your clinic? That's a, it's a, your sign language, you know, all of it. Yeah. It's, it's important. So, I mean, I think the way that I, have always approached my piece, my role with cochlear implant team is helping parents navigate that process and helping them understand what's coming next, what should they expect, what should they not expect. So a big part of my talk as they're in process with cochlear implant team is what do cochlear implants mean for children? You know, helping parents understand because there's a lot of stuff that parents look at on YouTube. And it's very, it's, it's cold. So you, for, for example, I'm just going to give you an example. When a cochlear implant is activated, so Dr. Kutz puts an implant in a child, they heal up for two to four weeks, and then the audiologist turns it on. And then there's this series of programming mapping that we do that to gradually increase the programming and sort of match it to what that child needs. Well, a child who's say 12 months old, who's been deaf since birth, who's never heard any sound input whatsoever, the moment you give them sound, that can be a very, very interesting moment for a child. And I think it's very important for families to know that it can look just like YouTube where they turn it on and the baby lights up like a Christmas tree and everybody cries and laughs and claps and it's great. It can also look, the baby can be absolutely petrified and break down or just get really quiet and scared. Those are all typical responses. They are all expected that first time that a baby hears sound, we don't know what they're going to do. And so if parents don't know that and they have watched all the, the pretty YouTube, because the baby's crying when the cochlear implant is turned on, those don't make it to YouTube. You are not going to find those. <laughs> so, but they're, but they're very important. That's a very normal expected response for a child who's experiencing something completely new for the first time. So for families to know that it's okay if the baby kind of freaks out a little bit that's like that little thing is so important because I've had parents come to me with cochlear implants in a bag that when right after they've been activated and said the baby gets so upset and I'm like okay let's put one on and we're gonna cry it's gonna happen and then we're gonna just keep talking and then we're gonna let the baby get used to it and then we're gonna be okay and then we'll put the other one on the baby's probably gonna cry again like there's a process there and so I think a lot of what I do is helping families understand 
what is the range of outcomes? Cochlear implants have never been better. The, the technology has never been better. The surgical technique is, is you know, con continuing to evolve. It doesn't mean it's going to be hearing like the parents have. We know that. It's not, a, it's not a bionic ear. We might get there one day, but we're not there yet. So understanding that children are all unique, and so there's a range of potential outcomes. We're shooting for access to listening and spoken language. We, depending on the risk factors involved, we expect to get there, but we also have to be prepared for the fact that that may not happen. So, you know, it's not, it's not to be doom and gloom with families, but just to make sure that they don't have this expectation that we're going to put this thing on and we're going to turn it on and everything's fine. Because when we talked about this on the last episode, that's, you have a deaf child and they will always be a deaf child no matter what we do. And so helping families embrace that and helping their child embrace that, that's my job. So getting deaf role models involved, hooking parents up with family support programs like Texas Hands and Voices, which is just a bunch of other parents with deaf and hard of hearing kids. Because, you know, Walter and I have been doing this collectively for, I'm guessing, many decades. But, you know, like we don't have, I, I'm not the mom of the deaf child. We don't have deaf children. We don't sit in that seat. And so sometimes connecting a family with another parent is much more powerful than anything I can tell them. So that's kind of my role in the cochlear implant process is helping families understand the range of possibility that's coming with the cochlear, but then also more globally for their child. That's wonderful. I, I, I love it. One last thing, because I'm probably going to end up having to wrap up soon. Uh, Dr. Coots, are there any absolute contraindications for a cochlear implant? I guess... If there's no nerve. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm like, no, okay. yeah. yeah. What are, you know, interestingly, I mean, that's a great question. You know, if there's no cochlea, definitely a contraindication. But, you know, if a cochlea, we have done implants for kids that there's no visible nerve. And um, there's been reports in our study, kids that had no visible nerve, they really maybe got some pattern awareness. And that could have been more of a sensation than an auditory signal. There have been other reports where some kids have gotten some you know, very limited close set speech. So, you know, that's, that's traditionally been a contraindication is a, a totally absent nerve on imaging. But if there's an internal eye canal, there's a cochlea, there's a chance cochlear fibers could be traveling on the vestibular nerve or even the facial nerve. So I think that's a little bit of the discretion of the surgeon and the, the cochlear implant team. If a patient has a cochlea, then there's nowhere to place the cochlear implant. I and mean, then we can get into the whole whole other episode about the brainstem implants for kids, which we won't get into that, but that's a, a possibly Maybe not really. Alt, you, I think we got another episode coming up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's, that's a tough one. And that's not, no one's paying for that right now. So that's pretty tough. And, and, but um, yeah, and, and otherwise, you know, I, I do think, you know, it's important to, and it's why we had the multidisciplinary team. Dr. St. John's such a critical part of that team. You know, if a child has, is, has other severe neurologic um, disorders and you really have to, we have to decide what are, what are our expectations. And you, know, you can never guess that 100%. We don't have the crystal ball we'd like to have. But you really do need to talk to the parents. Listen, you're, we're putting your child under a two-hour general anesthetic with a $30,000 implant. And that does have risks, although they're low risk for surgery. There's a risk of meningitis and other problems. And, you know, as a team, we think the, the benefit is going to be extremely limited. And it's always, in my opinion, very difficult to have that conversation and to be like, you know, it may be best to look at alternative ways of communication besides a cochlear implant, you know, for your child. And it, of course, that's a discussion, you know, between the family and the team. But um, I don't, 
I don't know that's an absolute contraindication, but there are some, you know, reasons you may not want to pursue a cochlear implant despite having normal anatomy and, and these sort of things. And that's a great, I just really quickly would just say too that, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it is, it's very, it's very kid related, but it's also very parent expectation related because we've had parents who have said environmental awareness of sound is really important to us and our kid. And, and you know, maybe that's not like the goal that we would all ideally want, but that can actually be really important for a family. It can be important for safety. It can be important for engagement. And, you know, the reality is, I mean, Dr. Coots knows this. I mean, I, I encourage families to pursue multiple avenues of language, regardless of what they're doing. So whether they get a cochlear implant or hearing aids or whatever, or, or don't, I always support sign language being involved because there's not really a big downside to bilingualism. But you know, for some kids, that's going to be more critical because we do have to be really honest with families and say, you know, we're not here to tell you, no, this is not allowed. But here, here's what what we're seeing on imaging and we're seeing with your child. And, you know, your, your kid it rubs their head on their chair all day long and you can't keep a hearing aid on. A cochlear implant's probably functionally not going to help them a whole lot. And we do have to be really honest about that. And that is, I, I agree with Dr. Coots. That's a hard discussion, but you know, we've had kids who've, whose parents have elected to get cochlear implants f with minimal gain. And sometimes I look at that and go, wow, that's a long way to go to get it. And then this child is just so happy with that input and that little bit of increased awareness and connection with others, even if they're not using it to understand or speak language. And, you know, I, 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 have, to, I have to give that a lot, of, a lot of respect because that child's existence looks really different in the same way that sometimes parents say that is not worth it to us. Yeah. Everyone's different. Yeah. The only, the, if I can add one quick point about cochlear implants, you know, the cochlear implants have recently been approved for single-sided deafness. And, you know, we've done a few kids with single-sided deafness. It's again, that's a whole nother episode, but just for the audience to be aware, that is something that's going to be the next, you know, few years. I think we'll really sort out when, you know, a child may be a good candidate for single-sided deafness cochlear implantation. Right now, the FDA approval is for five years of age. Yeah. Sometimes we'll do things off-label, off but I think that's something to be aware of and something that if the, fam the family should at least know about it, and if they want to have more questions answered, I think it'd be important to refer them to a cochlear implant center so they can, they can at least you know, be informed of what the, the options may be. I think that's going to be huge for our congenital CMV kids yeah. because they often will start with unilateral changes and then progress to include bilateral. And that's you know, that's a group that would benefit from an early unilateral implant. If, if we know that that other ear potentially may change, that might be really helpful for them. It's a great point. Awesome. Well, I think we've really, you know, done a great job of, of exploring this topic today. Are there any last final thoughts, anything that we've missed that you guys want to leave our listeners with? You know, just a quick thing. I always think about this. I hear these cases. If a, a child has bilateral, like oral atresia or bilateral conductive hearing loss, please make sure they have a bone anchor, I'm just giving a bone conducting hearing aid on as soon as possible. I have unfortunately seen cases where they were never fit because they can't have a hearing aid because they don't have ear canals. But that's something I think very important to to keep in mind. I mean, you know, with bone conducting hearing aids, a child will develop normal speech. Without them, they won't. And that's something I see sometimes that's just kind of devastating. So just something for the audience to remember. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess my my parting thought, it's probably very similar to what we talked about before, is that, you know, for these kids who are who are deaf and hard of hearing, particularly at birth or very early age, you know, the the one through a thousand thing from from my perspective in working with families is access to language 
early. And I think Dr. Kuss alluded to, to this a little earlier when we're talking about, you know, when you get into late cochlear implants and your your language outcomes tend to go down, you know, it's it's a use it or lose it. And the, that that first year of life is a very critical year of life in terms of brain development and pruning and and making sure that these kids all have access to language regardless of mode, regardless of whether it's spoken sign, protactile, whatever you're doing, depending on the child, not sitting around and waiting for language, waiting for something to happen, waiting for the next piece of technology or intervention or resource or person who's going to work with them is, I think, really critical because, yeah, once that ship sailed, it, it does not come back. Thank you both for uh, spending this time with us. For our listeners, you can find us at Backtable ENT on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Reach out to me or Ash. Uh, we'd love your feedback, your input. Uh, if you want to come on the show, topics. If you're not, if you're digging on uh, Dr. Coots and Dr. St. John, you can check out their their episodes, episode uh, four and episode ten. And as far as social media, I know Dr. Coots, you're EarDoc One on Twitter. Is that right? That's right. And Rachel, you're not tweeting, right? Still, still blissfully <laughs> free of social media platforms. That's you didn't get blocked, did you? You weren't blocked from Twitter, right? Oh, so. all, all the time. All, no, I actually, I've never, I've never delved into the Twitter, the Twitterverse. So yeah, I'm just sitting over here with my phone doing whatever. But if, if you want to connect with with either of them, you can always reach out to us, and we can we can get you guys guys connected to them. They're they're both great great resources. But we appreciate our listeners, and we hope you'll subscribe, rate, and share our podcast with anyone you feel might find this topic interesting. That's a wrap. Bye. <laughs> Thanks, guys.